Do you love racing? Then you've come to the right place. We discuss current topics in most asphalt series, as well as deep dives into the history of racing, race cars, and the drivers. I'm NASCAR driver Derek Cope. I share some of my personal stories, as well as highlighting those people that shaped my career and others. I'm Alicia Cope, and we also take on controversial and engaging topics on many subjects, including NASCAR, as well as tips and tricks that have worked for us in building teams from scratch, keeping relationships, and finding new roads. Hopefully our experiences will inspire you to reach your own goals. Let's get started. Welcome back to Race Theory. This is episode 43, and I have a good friend with me. I don't have many guests on, but this one I've been looking forward to, and it is Kevin LePage. And Kevin has been, you know, kind of like along the same path in racing that I took and started in 1980 and obviously had a, a great career through the Bush Series, ran some truck races, as well as a, a great uh, cup uh, career as well. So, Kevin, thanks for coming on. Welcome to be here. Yeah. Well, obviously, you know, we were talking about the parallels that you and I have had over the years. And, you know, we've obviously kind of run the same kind of you know, progression uh, of trying to make it to the to the Cup Series, as well as some of the, you know, the the difficult times in racing, the highs and the lows, and obviously meeting a lot of great people, driving for a lot of great car owners. Uh, and, you know, we got to race together. You drove for me when I was hurt uh, with my friendlies deal and finished some races there with Ernie as a crew chief. And, uh, you know, later on in my Xfinity deal as well. So um, it's, it's been a great relationship. We've, you know, got to know each other over the years and uh, it's been, it's been great. And uh, now we're the latter stages of things where we're out of racing and looking to do other things. And we'll talk about that as well. But uh, let me start with, you, you know, where you, where, where you really came from. I mean, you were born in Shelburne, Vermont, and that's where you really started racing. Is that correct? That's right. Um, you know, it, it started uh, a few years before that. Um, I think when I was probably around uh, two, three years old, uh, my dad used to drag race. And um, I used to sit in his car during the week playing, you know, grabbing the steering wheel and stuff. And then when he used to leave, he'd left, you know, left me back at the house with my mom. And my mom said I'd cry the whole time when he was gone because uh, I just wanted to go racing with him. And um, eventually, um, in the late 70s, he bought a, a late model car, a uh, NASCAR North car from my older brother. And uh, we started racing uh, at our local racetrack. And uh, in 1980, my brother, uh, during the wintertime, uh, early before the season started, he got married. And so my dad said, all right, here's what we're going to do. Um, Kevin, you're going to run the 35 lappers um, weekly series. And we're going to let Ricky, who's been racing for five years, he's going to run the 100 lap, 200 lap races. So my brother, you know, ran four or five races early in the season. And uh, here comes my first Saturday night race. And, um, it was a 35 lap race and, um, I sat, uh, I qualified, uh, in the heat race, um, sat on the pole and, uh, finished 10th in the feature. And, uh, from that point on, uh, my brother got fired the next morning and, uh, I took over his bush ride. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing with my brother and I, you know, he was driving the car first and, and I started driving it and he said, well, you know, my dad says, you guys want to do this? And Darren's like, 
you know, I said, I like, I like driving them, but I didn't really want to work on it. So, you know, it's very dim, but you was, you just outperformed. I mean, you got the job and kicked, uh, kicked him to the side. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I went on that year and, and, um, one rookie of the year. And, um, I raced with my dad through, uh, the 1984 season. And then my dad got divorced and, um, he shut the race team down and I was hired from a team in Maine, uh, Norseman racing. And, um, I went there race 85 uh won several bush races that year uh with a new team um the second year uh again won some more races um both of the uh, uh there was two brothers that ran the operation owned an operation and then in 1987 uh, we brought a partner in of vj of e. prescott and uh after about four races um my original car owner carl merrill uh, decided to sell the race team to uh, peter prescott well i got a phone call during the week to meet him at the race shop and um, i got fired and ricky craven was my replacement driver and so uh, it's like man you know uh you just pulled the rug right out from underneath this i mean i was third in the points you know i already run two races and so uh i called my dad up and i said uh can i buy my race car back you know you still have it he goes yeah so um we would travel home friday nights to um get our car ready to go to the racetrack and i was out for three weeks uh, getting this car prepared you know getting the engines built and all that stuff and uh my first race out i won the event and ricky craven had to take uh had a buyer ride because he didn't qualify for the race so kind of a little gratification right there <laughs> yeah that's always good when that happens <laughs> isn't it it is it is and uh so from um 87 to uh end of 93 i owned my own race team uh, we switched over from nascar north to act uh, which were plastic cars like asa cars and um i ended up uh from i think around 90 91 uh hired a guy to be a crew chief you know during the week because i had two cars you know we were running 30 some odd races a year you know traveling from Vermont to Nova Scotia to Ontario. I mean, we we're going all over the place and a lot of this stuff was weekends. So we would leave, you know, Friday morning or Friday afternoon and drive through the night, Sunday night after the race and be back to work Monday morning. So, um, at the end of 93, um, um, during the season of 93, uh, I was at a, a golf, uh, course, uh, at Thompson Speedway and Tom Curley and I was playing golf and, uh, I looked over at Tom Curley. He was our tour director, one of the best promoters in the Northeast, probably in the United States. And I said to Tom, I said, hey, I said, out of the guys right now, I said, who do you think would make it down south? And without beating an eyelash, he says, LePage, LaJoy, McDonald, Craven. And uh, all of us, all four of us made it here. Yeah. Um, Randy got hurt, uh, McDonald, and ended his career early, but uh, – he was still involved, you know, as a car owner, but, uh, you know, Randy LaJoy won championships and, uh, Craven, uh, won championships and won some cup races. And, you know, I won some, uh, some Bush races. So, uh, he had a good vision. So, uh, at the end of 93, um, Ken Squire sat down with me and said, look, you've done everything you can. Now it's time to move south if you want to make this a living. And I said, sure. I said, I'd like to do that. So um, he said, well, here, he said, here's some passes for you and Donna, my wife, to go to Rockingham. And he says, um, there's some teams down there that I'll set you up with meetings, you know, to, uh, you know, hopefully get, to, get yourself a ride. 
So we go down there and, and, um, we met with some car owners, um, existing car owners, some new car owners. And, uh, one of them, um, I don't remember their name, but they were lawyers out of Pennsylvania and they were starting a new team and it came down to two drivers they were interested in. One was, uh, myself and the other one was Mike Stefanik, modified champion from, uh, the North. Well, long story short, they picked Mike because of championship. So, um, you know, we're coming home from the meeting with them and, um, I'm like, you know, Donna, I says, we ran and operated our own team for years up here. Why can't we do it down South? It's just going to be a bigger scale. So we started looking around and, and we found a race team for sale, which was Jim bound, uh, Dick bounds team. And, uh, we got sponsorship from the Vermont teddy bear and, uh, we put a deal together and, um, uh, we came down in, in, uh, 94 and, and started our career. I remember, you know, obviously Jim, I've known Jim a long time, you know, and Chuck Bowen, obviously from the West coast and my father and a couple of those racing engines did engines for the Lakes drywall team that Chuck drove for. So I've known them guys for a long time, racing against Jimmy a lot. And I remember that. I remember that team that he had. Right. And then I remember the Vermont teddy bear deal that you brought in. It was a, a pretty, from an optical standpoint, it was really huge at that time. It really was well-received. You guys were doing a lot of great things, you know, with that, uh, you know, particular sponsorship. And you had some, you had a lot of success right off the bat with that. We did. I mean, from, uh, from the souvenir trailer, I mean, it was, it was crazy. Actually that in 94, um, there was a study done at Richmond and we outdid Dale Earnhardt as far as sales. And, um, I mean, just, it was, it was a kid friendly. It was an, uh, an adult friendly. Um, it was just a, a product that we could you know, market really well. The unfortunate thing is, um, about a year, two years after we were down here, they went, um, public and they were trying to look at their returns. And, uh, we were in the process of getting a Dale Earnhardt bear built and, uh, it, it, we just never put the timing together. And then I got a notification, I think around August of, uh, 96 that they were, um, not going to be back or excuse me, 95. They weren't going to renew in 96. And, um, we were at Dover and, uh, Teresa Earnhardt came up and said, do you have that teddy bear? And I'm like, no, the company's pulling the plug. We're done. And I mean, it was just, you know, 30 days earlier, you know, I think Vermont teddy bears still being a sport, you know, because it know, was that kind of a uh, product. Timing is everything, right? In mm -hmm. so many ways, you know, we, I think we all look back at certain things and you base, you base decisions on what you have information on, you know, you're trying to put things together. You're trying to put, you know, companies with, you know, an opportunity to get quantifiable return on investment, right? You know, give, give value for what you got, right? And you're on the cusp of putting big things together. And then, you know, I had the same thing happen with PureLayer. They were going public. And so, you know, they're trying to keep money in the till. So, you know, people don't really realize how, how much goes on within companies, right? And it really is difficult. Uh, and you got to stay on top of it. And then, you know, lots of times, you know, there's so much red tape, you can't. And, right. uh, but you, in, that was 90, that was 95, you said, right? Yeah. I mean, at the end of 95. Yeah. Cause you would, in that year of 95, you had had like uh, one of your really, really good years, right? I mean, that was like what, top five, top tens. I think you were 18th in points, something like that. I mean, you were really, um, you know, a, a force to be reckoned with. We were, we were solid for a team that yeah. you didn't have a lot of 
um, money and didn't have a lot of, um, you know, personnel wise, you know, um, uh, we moved out of Asheboro from 94 to 95 and we brought Richard Lassiter, who used to be a driver as my crew chief and, uh, him and I just clicked, you know, we just really had a, a solid year. We did miss a couple of races, but you know, we didn't let it bother us. You know, we had some solid races and then, um, during the winter between 95 and 96, I told the team, I says, you know, we're going to run, you know, back then, I think we had, um, seven races in a row to start the season. Then we had a two week break. I says, I'm going to guarantee you we're going to run seven races. And at the end of seven races, if we don't have a sponsor, we're going to, you know, shut the team down. So we started and, uh, we were at Atlanta and, um, I'm not sure if we blew up or something happened to the car and, um, our day was you know over early and, um, I'm in my trailer uh, changing and all of a sudden I see a, a driver walking through the garage area with four shocks in his hands. And it was Pete Orr, who was driving the 88 farmer's choice car. And so I'm like, man, I didn't hear caution or nothing, you know? So I just was continued changing. And all of a sudden at the side door was David Ridland. He goes, um, can you take my car out? He says, I, my driver said there's something wrong with it. I, want, I, I need a second opinion. I'm like, okay, sure. So, uh, you know, Pete was like six foot two and I'm, you know, five, nine, you know, so we got in there and we made the, you know, made things work. We dropped the steering wheel down. We were down so many laps. They didn't care. So, uh, we're going down pit road and, uh, the spotter comes out over the radio and he said, all right, leaders coming off from four and I'm just getting up on the racetrack and turn one. But David said, Hey, he says, you know, if the car's evil, just pull it back in. Right. So I took off and, uh, about two laps later, David goes, how's the car going? I'm like, and I wish my car drove like this. I said, you want me to come in? He goes, hell no. He says, leaders ain't catching you. I said, keep going. I want to see what this thing does. And we ran the rest of the day. So, uh, we got to Bristol, which was our last race. We ran that race and, uh, we didn't have sponsorship. So, um, uh, I got all the guys together, you know, in the trailer. And I'm like, thank you. You know, cause we had a lot of, you know, volunteer pit crew guys. And I said, thank you. And, and, uh, we're just getting ready to close the door. And, and, uh, David Riddling and, uh, Ray Smith from Chevrolet was standing on the side and they said, what are you doing? And I was like, well, we're done. This is, this is our end, you know? And, uh, Ray Smith said to me, he says, um, you might have a possibility of driving the 88 car the rest of the year. He said, Pete Orr quit during the race. And, uh, can you meet David tomorrow, which was a Sunday at a shop? I'm like, sure. So we went down and, uh, made a deal and, um, pretty much that's where my career took off another, another time. And, uh, we, uh, we had some solid races with the 88 team, went down to Homestead, brought a brand new sponsor with hype, won that race, you right. know, beat yeah. Terry Labonte or I mean, Bobby Labonte and, uh, Mark Martin and just. I mean, dominated that race down there. I mean, we were, it was, it was a really good day for us. You know, it's always, you know, I've obviously owned my own teams as well. And it's a different, if it's a difficult dynamic, you know, I mean, you really, you got to drive for people as a race car driver, get paid to drive a car, right? And then you, you know, things happen and you have to reinvent yourself or, or go down another path and own your own teams, right? And people, I don't think really have a real, you know, sense of just how difficult it is, you know, to manage everything, to drive a car, you know, you know, do all the logistics, do all, you know, your wife taking care of all that, you're taking care of people and you're doing it on a really low budget and, you know, trying to get the most out of what you have. Right. And then another opportunity and then you're on the cusp of, 
of not having the money, you know, not you know, bankrupting yourself and stopping and you make a conscious choice to do that. And then, you know, another door opens and then you get, uh, you know, a new release on life mm-hmm. and you get started something else and you're able to showcase your talent, you know, and I think it's so, it's so remarkable that those opportunities just keep coming. And, you know, you really do. If you have the kind of experience that you had and that I had those times, you could qualify a race car and you could go and run productively. And then they, they get to really see that just how much, you know, much you bring to the table. And then it goes for a long period of time. Yep. Well, that, that, um, that year with Riddling, you know, we, uh, um, the 96 season, I mean, we had a lot of top fives and, 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 you know, we won that race down in, in Homestead and, um, you know, we we're celebrating at the, um, restaurant and, uh, all of a sudden the waiter come over and he's got this huge cake and I'm like, well, we didn't order dessert. And they said, no, that guy over there walking out the door is the guy who bought it. And it was Jack Rouse. Um, he saw what, you know, what we did, you know, what I did. Um, you know, we made smart moves on the racetrack, um, past Mark Martin, you know, several times cause we had some bad pit stops and, um, you know, in, in 97, you know, we, um, we're out there racing and, and, you know, David decided to go to a two car team, you know, David Ridland, the sponsorship from hype went away. And, um, you know, he was trying to fund everything with the land sponsorship and, and finally mid season, he realized he had to do something different. So he brought in a, a, you know, financial investor who had a son who wanted to race and with Kevin Swantz with the motorcycles. And, um, you know, I'm out the door and, you know, so then all of a sudden Joe Fox calls me to drive the 91 car because, you know, Mike Wallace wasn't doing a good job. And, you know, we, um, we go to New Hampshire. And, uh, um, we had, we were like top 15 in practice and, um, during one, we went to qualify and went, got through one and two. And, and our data showed after the rate, after qualifying that we were like top 10. And unfortunately I carried so much speed back into turns three that I overdrove the corner and, and missed the race. And, uh, so we got back to the shop and Joe says, um, we're going to go practice at 600 or for the, or for the 600. And, um, not just not the 600, but the fall uh, Coke race or whatever it is back then. And he said, we're going to go. And if you practice well, we'll, we'll go back for the race. So, uh, we go down there and we bring Clyde, uh, McLeod down, uh, excuse me, Clyde Booth Clyde down Luke, yeah. and, uh, we're out there running and Clyde says, um, he comes back in and he goes, um, when you go into turn one, when you hear me say now lift. And when you hear me say now, step on the gas and don't lift till you get in and turn three. I said, all right. So, uh, we go back out and here I'm coming down straight away and I get in and turn one. It goes now, now. And I'm like, holy crap. You know, I mean, my mind couldn't quick go that quick, but you know, hell I picked up a half a second. So we go down and turn three, does the same thing. Right. So we both a set of tires on and we go out and we were second fastest out of everybody that was there. So we go back for the race and. I think we ended up qualifying in top 15, you know, with an unsponsored Chevrolet. And, uh, we go out and practice, um, the next morning with our race motor and we go into turn one and next thing that thing turns around, backs it in the fence and killed the car. And 
Well, come to find out, Joe Nemechek, who was driving for Sabco, um, they went out after changing the rear end and never put a plug in the rear end and uh, oil down the racetrack. And, the, you know, we didn't spotters back then. And so they gave us a car, um, and it was the most evil driven car I ever was in. But, uh, you know, we, uh, we had some really solid runs with Joe Falk. Um, Doug Richard was our crew chief. Um, Clyde was our engineer. And, uh, I mean, I remember down in Atlanta, um, in 98, um, I passed Earnhardt probably five times and, uh, that was weekend. Steve Park got hurt. And, um, Monday morning, I got a phone call about eight o'clock. It was, uh, Ty Norris. And he says, uh, you need to meet Dale at the big shop on highway three at three o'clock this afternoon. So we get there and, and Dale's there and he says, uh, Steve's going to be out for a few months. And he said, I want you to drive my car, the one Pennzoil car. And, uh, I'm like, man, okay. You know, and, and then, uh, Don Hawk came in and he looked over and he goes, Hey, Hey Kevin. And he looked at Dale and he goes, that deal we're working on. He said, it's still there. And Dale goes, you dumb, dumb, dumb. He says, that's the guy I want to drive my car. And he says, come on, Kevin. And, and I had Donna with me. So, so we went walking and he, going through the shop and he, so he goes, what do you think? And I'm like, well, I only get a chance to run for rookie of the year one time. And I said, if Steve comes back with five races to go, my rookie of the year chances are out. And he goes, mm. he goes, I'll put a second car together for you. I said, all right. I said, um, can I give you an answer by noon tomorrow? He goes, 1201. I'll make my decision. I said, all right. So we were testing at Martinsville. So on the way to Martinsville, I called Terry Labonte and I called Ricky Rudd and guys who have been through the stuff that I was going through, you know, changing drivers and stuff. Both of them said loyalty and, and 50 cents won't buy you a cup of coffee. He said, if somebody comes up to Joe Falk with some money or whatever, you're gone. So I called Dale and, uh, he said, uh, it was like about 10 o'clock. He goes, um, man, he said, we had to put Daryl in the car and, uh, he said, I wanted you in that car. And uh, I said, all right. So, you know, we proceeded to race the 91 car for some more races. And then all of a sudden, and I remember this vividly, I was working on my deck at my house, building a new deck. And that whole week, every day, somebody knew. Rick Hendrick, uh, John Hendrick, Ray Everham, Doug Yates, Robert Yates. Richard Childress, Jack Roush. I mean, anybody who had a race team, Joe Gibbs, you know, J.D. Gibbs, they were all calling. They wanted to meet. And I went and met with all these guys. Jack was the only one that was going to put me in a car uh, for the fall Michigan race. All the other guys wanted to sign on a retainer to the end of the year to see how their drivers were going to, you know, pan out. And um, I'm just like, man, you know, I don't know. I mean, a retainer is fine, but if I don't get a deal, if you, if your driver steps up the plate or whatever, I'm out. So I took the Jack Roush deal. Well, I'm out out in Sonoma running a 91 car, uh, qualified probably one of my best runs out there and uh, come in Saturday morning to do my practice runs and I'm fired. Tommy Kendall's in the car. <laughs> I'm like, what's going on? They're like, ah, well, you kind of are bailing on us. And I told Joe Fock, I gave Joe Fock, it was almost two months. I says, I'm, I'm leaving you at, you know, for the Michigan race. I said, so, you know, I'll let you get time to put a driver in. I didn't think he would do that to me. 
So it's kind of put some sour grapes in me. So I was out of a ride for a few weeks, you know, but you know, when I was ready, you know, when the mission came around, I was ready to be in the 16 car. Yeah. You know, it's, it's one of those things, you know, you just opportunities, right? I mean, you want somebody that's going to put their money where their mouth is, right? And a guy like that, you know, gave you, he was going to give you the opportunity, right? And everybody else is looking at what's best in their best interest mm-hmm. for them, right? And like you say, you, you know, you have to, you have to make a decision that's best for you, right? And I mean, so many people have been loyal, you know, and it hasn't worked out for them, right? And, and then there's people that, you know, it, it obviously has, but I think, like you say, it's one of those things where, you know, I've always, you know, Ray Everham, I remember him telling me out of sight, out of mind. And I think that was something that always stuck with me too, is as later on in my careers, when things had deteriorated, you, I made choices that, you know, I just wanted to be there and be seen. So I at least would have an opportunity. So if something went well, somebody that really understood racing could see things like they did with you, yep. they would see you know, where you were very proficient at and the abilities you had, and they could see below, you know, and see through the cars you were driving and the personnel issues and all those things. So that's, that's the, that's the difference, right? The guys that really know racing and understand it, um, can make good conscious decisions, you know? So that was, so that was really, uh, at, was that the start of the Roush, uh, opportunity for you when, cause that was, uh, what night was that? Ninety. Um, eight or so, ninety nine, yeah, uh, ninety eight, yeah. nine, yeah. yeah, yeah, and you know, um, had a had a good deal there, um, for two weeks. I mean, uh, when uh, Jeff Smith, you know, brought me into the the meetings, uh, Donna was there, my wife again, and I said, "Well, how does a multi car team operate?" And it's like open book. You can go to the Mark Martin's car, you can go to Jeff Burton's car, you can go to Johnny Benson's car, you can go to Chad Lotto's car. Ask their crew chief, they're going to give you the book, you know, show you tire pressures, air shock bills, everything you want. I said, perfect. And this is what I need, you know. So we go to Michigan, had a decent day. We go to Bristol the set, you know, next week, finish 10th, solid. I think I was the best Roush car. Tuesday morning, Jack's complimenting the race team, complimenting me, and and so everybody's getting ready to leave. And Jack goes, "Hold, hold on a minute, uh, driver, crew chief, team manager, hold on a minute. The rest of the guys will see you next week." And I said, "All right." So everybody gets up and and leaves except for the three of us. And uh, once the door got closed, Jack says, um, "There's some new rules in Roush Racing now. Uh, some of the upper." Enchilant are saying that, you know, we're giving you everything and they had to work for it. So from now on, um, spring shocks and sway bars are all confidential, everything else you can have. And I'm like, that wasn't the deal. And they're like, well, you know, you, you guys are going to have to earn what you, what you want. So we basically, um, Johnny Benson and myself, we were up in Liberty and Mark Martin and Jeff Burton were down in, uh, Mooresville with Chad. And uh, we were the redhead stepchild. Um, we outqualified those guys, and Jack would make us come in on a Friday when you know there was no, you know, Charlotte with no uh, nothing going on to take our motor out because Jeff Burton and Mark Martin were complaining that we had more horsepower and and we were anywhere between six and twelve horsepower down every week. And uh, you know we were on a racetrack several times and um, outrunning them, and we'd get a. Uh, voice over the radio um 
you need to slow down so Jeff can pass you or Mark can pass you. And I would slow down and then I'd pass him again, you know, and it, it was just, um, it was a difficult time, you know, but, you know, I, I'm also, you know, thankful for Jack for giving me the opportunity, but you know, the, when we missed the last race that I was with them, um, we were at Atlanta, which was one of my favorite racetracks. We had a car that probably shouldn't even condemn, you know, competed in a demolition derby. It was that bad. We blew a motor up second time out on the racetrack. The car was evil driving. I was dead last out of everybody. And this is a track that I won my poles. I, you know, I'm, I'm very good at, at these mile and a half racetracks. And, uh, um, Jack's, uh, comes in the trailer, you know, when we're done and, um, uh, all they cared about was me signing their contract because in Roush racing back then is if they didn't give you a termination letter by the 1st of August, you were guaranteed to get a salary for the following year. Well, they were still working on sponsorship. So they didn't turn, you know, give me a termination letter, Well, they wanted me to sign it. And I said, no. And, uh, so we, um, we went back and forth through the winter time. And finally, um, I had a couple bush cars that were built, you know, from Roush racing I was running my own team because I had nothing going on the following year. And Jack brings me in after the first, or I think it was right before Christmas. And he goes, have you ever run your contract? And I said, no. He goes, well, there's a, he had it highlighted. He says, I have the first right to refuse you to drive any other vehicle except for a Roush racing product. Meaning that he could stop me from driving my own car. And he says, do you remember Steve Grissom? He did the same thing for Gary Bechtel. And Gary Bechtel kept him out of the race car for over a year. And where is Steve Grissom today? He says, I won't do that. He says, I'll bring you to the racetrack. He says, I guarantee you I can find a broom that'll fit your hands. He says, you will be at the racetrack. But you won't drive anything. So uh, long story short, we made a deal and, and he paid me off. And um, I'm not sure if it was that year or the following year, his dad died. And um, when I was driving for Morgan McClure, and uh, Every time I saw Jack in the garage area, Jack would go one way or the other. He would never confront me. Well, this weekend, his dad had died, and so Jack came face-to-face, and he walked the other way. And I went up to him, and I, I grabbed him, and I put an arm around him. I said, man, I'm so sorry about your dad. I said, your dad was a great man, and he was. He was a very nice man. And uh, he looked up at me, and he goes, thanks for saying that. And I started to walk away, and he grabbed me, and he goes, I'm sorry. I said, for what, Jack? He said, I listened to the wrong people. He said, I didn't give you what you should have got. He says, you deserve more than that. He said, if you ever, ever need anything, he says, make sure you give me a call. And, you know, um, I tell the story, you know, I've told it several times. And a lot of people think I'm just mad and jealous. I'm not mad. I'm telling the truth. You know, people don't know, you know, what goes on behind the scenes. And, uh, you know, I have nothing no reason to say anything negative about Jack, you know, is just, it's true. You know, the guys up front, you know, Mark Martin, Jeff Burton, they were scared. Here I am second race on a race car, a Roush car, and I'm kicking their butt. And we really could have put a hurting on those guys because I was and am a racer and, uh, they were jealous. And so they, they kind of hurt me in, in more ways than one, but, you know, at the end of the day, it is what it is. I can't change it. You know, all I can do is talk about it. Um, you know, uh, Jack gave me an opportunity. Um, I've had a, 
a great life in racing and made a lot of great people, uh, a lot of great friends. And, um, you know, life goes on. You know, that's the interesting part about this. I think that's the reason why I really wanted to have you on. And, you know, it's the reason why I think my wife and I really started this, you know, kind of to be able to chronicalize, you know, our own peril, our own, you know, things that we went through and very similar to, you know, your story, right? I mean, you people on the outside don't really have any conception what it's like on the inside of these types of deals. And, you know, the the people that have people's ears, you know, the people that are behind the scenes of, you know, behind Jack Roush, you know, and, and, you know, they pull people certain ways or they have, you know, things that they feel like that they want, they have their own agendas. And, you know, it, it obviously does disrupt what's going on. And when you have an opportunity to showcase, you know, your ability, so many times it gets undermined by other things. And that's, that's why I think it's important that, you know, the guys have opportunities to talk about it and express what really went on. Like you just said, we have no reason to lie or misrepresent the situation. Facts are facts, and that's the way it is. But everybody else keeps those things, you know, under wraps and they're hidden just to make themselves, you know, appear in a different light. And it really is unfortunate. But, you know, it is time that people know what really happened. And it's not always the best guys that are doing the best things, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and it, there's a lot of talented guys that have done a lot of things in the sport, maybe not to the level of other people, but they have won races, they have sat on poles, and they've done it in modest equipment. And I think those are the guys that are the true, you know, underdogs that really haven't gotten the fair shape to really showcase how talented they really were. Mm -hmm. And in your case, I think it's very much that way. You know, we... We've spent a lot of time together. You've driven for me. I know how talented you are. You manipulate a race car. You always have. And I always have a lot of respect for people that could do that. And, you know, it sometimes, like you say, you don't get to do it long enough. And that's the part that really sticks in your craw and hurts over the period of time is you didn't get as much time as you felt you deserved, mm -hmm. right, to do it at that level, yep. right? Yep. And then for me, it's the same way. It feels like, all of a sudden, now you start going down the other side and you're trying to find a way to, you know, rectify it. And so that was, what, 2000 or so? Yep. Yeah. So that's 2000. You you actually started your Bush deal again in matri actual Matrix Motorsports, right? That was in 2001. Is mm -hmm. that right? So you started the next thing that you'd already, you relied on what you'd done before and that you knew that you could do. And that was to start your own uh, Bush deal. Yeah. And so you went forward again. We did. We uh, we had two cars built um, from Roush. Um, we had Cosworth engines, and uh, we had sponsorship with uh, State Fair Corn Dogs. And um, we were uh, we were out in Vegas, and uh, I think we qualified top five, you know, in the Ford. And uh, we started off, and and uh, throttle was hanging, and uh, so we came in the pits and. Uh, we didn't have a jam nut underneath the air cleaner. So, you know, when they tighten the air cleaner down, it got hung up on, on the throttle. So the engine guy loosened it up. Well, we go down a lap. And back then, light, uh, lap cars were on the inside for a restart and, and leaders on the outside. Well, Jeff Burton was on the outside in the same chassis that I had. And uh, except he had a Roush motor and I had a Cosworth motor. Well, 
they threw the green flag. And by the time I came out of turn one, I was 20 car lengths ahead of them. Jeff Burton comes over the radio and he says, uh, Jack, that's what real horsepower is. About uh, two months later, um, we had a cup car that we bought. Uh, we actually sold, uh, traded one of my Bush cars um, to um, Shauna Robinson and um, the guy, I forget what his name was. Um, they had a cup car and um, they wanted to put Shauna in a, in a Bush car. And then I bought a cup car, you know, and Cosworth was building a motor. And uh, this motor was going to turn nine over nine thousand RPMs back then. Wow! And um, Ford Roush got got wind of it, and they put a kibosh on it. And shortly thereafter, Roush um, went to Ford and says, "You need to get rid of Cosworth." You know, we sat on a pole in Kansas. Um, I mean, we probably should have won half a dozen races that year. I mean, that thing was just on a rail. You know. And we were competing against Mark and Jeff because we both had, I had their cars because it was a chassis built from them. It's just, we had more horsepower. And, um, so they went away, you know, um, shortly thereafter. And, um, and then eventually I ended up selling, you know, Matrix because, um, you know, yeah, I think Michael Waltrip took the state fair corn dogs. Um, you know, it, it was just a battle you know, to try to keep good sponsors and stuff. And, um, it seemed like every time we got one, you know, somebody was gone, you know, somebody took it from us. Well, that was the, at that time, I mean, obviously I, you know, we brought state fair corn dogs in with the Sara Lee meat mm-hmm. groups divisions, you know, when I was with uh, Bahari and, and then, you know, as things, you know, filter down, then yeah, they, you know, everybody starts looking for ways to take sponsors. And that, at that time, yeah, that's what, instead of going and working on their own deals, they would, you know, try and come in and parasite from other people and take deals. And, uh, again, it's a tough, it's a tough thing and yep. it always has been. And that's always been the demise of a lot of smaller teams or underfunded teams, you know, is that when you do get something or you work hard and you present well, then all of a sudden people come in and start, you know, putting different things in there's more layers. And next thing you know, you're out the door. So, and so that was, so you kind of, just, Follows along the same lines of, you know, a lot of things that I did as well. I mean, we actually drove for a lot of the same people, right? I mean, like, I ended up driving for CLR, that first inaugural race at Kansas, made the race for them, right? And that was 9-11. I mean, we went and tested there that, the you know, that, like, weekend of 9-11. And, you know, you drove for Morgan McClure. Um, I don't know, some other guys I don't remember, but Comp Edge, R&J Racing. You know, I driven for Jimmy Means and Randy McDonald. I drove for Bam. Uh, you know, you drove for Robinson Blakeney. I drove for Jay Robinson. Uh, you know, Nemco, DeWare Racing. I know, I know those guys. And uh, you know, I mean, Mike Harmon. You name it. So many of the names in the sport uh, that have come and gone, or possibly you know, still there. But I, I've been in all those same paths. And you do what you have to do. Right. And you look for ways to go race. And, you know, as a race car driver, when you cut a really good lap, when you when you know what you're driving and when you go make the field or you go lay a lap down, out qualify stellar, well-funded race teams. There is a lot of self-gratification in that. And I think mentally for me, that was something that I think I used to keep myself in a position where I knew that I was capable of doing that. and. That's what kept me alive. It kept me going. And I remember 
Charlotte, the, you know, I was doing that starting park deal for Ray McGlynn. We make the race and Michael Waltrip had to buy my ride and same thing, Ty Norris, you know, I write the contract myself, you know, so that it protects him and you don't get a chance You go qualify for the event, but you'll get a chance to go do it, you know? So we've all been in those types of situations, right? But, you know, speak to a, a little bit towards the latter part of your career, the decisions and the mindset, you know, of really that last, you know, what, six, eight years, right? I mean, what was your, what was your mind at there? Well, when I, when I left Vermont, my goal was to make it to 50, 50 years old. Well, when I turned 50, I'm looking and I'm saying, I don't feel 50, you know? And when I came down here in, in 94, you know, a 50 year old man was, I'm not saying he was old, but he was older, you know, in just not physicality and just a lot of things. So perception, yes, perception. So, um, I, I continue to, you know, do the starting parks and, um, still hoping that I could get that one break, you know? And so that we put a lot of effort, you know, with Mac Hill Motorsports building a new Toyota. Uh, we did a lot of R and D work for their Toyota engines, uh, with TRD and, uh, and, and, you know, I was hoping that we could get a break, you know, so we would go and try to get our best lap and try to put the biggest lap up there. And, uh, so many times, you know, top tens, top fifteens, how qualifying some great cars and, uh, you know, get on, uh, get back in there and they're like, okay, you're going to drop to the back. You're going to run a handful of laps and park it. You know, we're going to save for the next week. So many people, um, over the years, especially a lot of, uh, people in Vermont, you know, reporters and stuff, you know, they despise me for doing it. It, it. They said it hurt my career, hurt this, hurt that, you know, killed my name, blah, blah, blah. Until they did podcasts with me over the last five years and say, you know, why did you do it? I'm like, because I wanted that next break. I still could get the job done. The day I realized I could not drive a race car was the day I was going to get out of it. 2014, um, we're at Homestead driving for Mark Har Mike Harmon, and uh, we missed the race. And I said, Mike, I said, um, well, you owe me some money. He goes, yeah, I know. He said, I'll get it to you. And on the way home, I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, is it worth it anymore? I mean, Mike paid me. He was, he, I knew Mike was going to pay me, but it was February of the following year before I got all my money. And I'm like, you know, I, I think that's the writing on the wall to say enough is enough that I don't need to chase money anymore. And at that point in 14, a lot of, of daddies, big wallets were coming in, putting these kids in for some, you know, one-off races or whatever the case may be. And I'm like, I don't need to do this anymore. And so that was the end of it. For me, uh, it's pretty much the same type of thing. You know, obviously I was ridiculed for doing some starting and parking. And I always, like you said, I felt like it was my opportunity to go out and do battle against guys like, you know, Elliot and later in his deal and Michael Waltrips and all these other people that were out there running. And I was taking, you know, uh, a group of nobodies and we were showing up the racetrack and we would make races and solidly, you know, and outperform these, these other guys thinking that you were going to showcase yourself in a manner which somebody would give you another shot, give you another break. Right. 
and it seemed like it just it it never really came and it was like everybody just you did these things and it you know you still you were able to still like i see and i did it for out of sight out of mind i felt like if i was there every week and i was performing at those levels that somebody would give you an opportunity but like you said i'm 53 or 54 at the time and things are changing and the sport is evolving to the point where it is more of a pay to drive scenario which it has become even more so today so i think we both were in a very similar situation and you know you get you know like i say ridiculed there's a lot of things that come out of it and people want to talk poorly about it but you know what I really have felt like I made the decisions I made at the time. I still wanted to drive a race car. I still loved driving the race car. And I want an opportunity to stick it up somebody's butt, you know, and show them that, hey, look, you're not better than me. And that's what I use it as a platform for. But, you know, uh, I feel and understand the same way that you do, right? And sometimes that's why part of the reason why I really wanted to have you be able to, I mean, I don't know how long I would do this, my wife and I, but I wanted to be able to chronicalize certain individuals that I felt like had a lot of parallels to what I had gone through and tell their way that they felt right. And that deserved the opportunity to, you know, the world's changed, the sport, the, you know, the sport we loved in NASCAR has changed. And now there's a lot of young kids out there like you and I were talking about before we started this uh, that will not have an opportunity to do what we did, dare to dream you know create a path or a you know something that you really drove yourself to do and ultimately you willed it to happen and made it happen and they'll probably never get the chance to do that and that's a sad thing for motorsports in general well it's nascar has become or racing in general has become a pay to play you can be six foot six and a multi-millionaire and if you can't throw a basketball, they don't care how much money you got. Or you can be 375 pounds uh, of, of linemen and have multiple millions of dollars behind you. But if you can't block anybody, you're not going to get on an NFL team. You and I came down here with our talent, and it spoke, not our wallets. Now these kids today are all, it's all about money. And it's not just in NASCAR. It goes all the way down to the, even some of the local divisions. And it's sad because, you know, I look back at it and I'm like, you know, we came down here with Vermont Teddy Bear in 94 with $350,000 sponsorship and raced that whole year. We sacrificed. We didn't have a stove in our house. I took Donna out once a month for dinner if we were lucky. And, you know, those are sacrifices that I would not change for anything right now because it made me a better person both on and off the racetrack to appreciate what we were doing. And, um, unfortunately that's gone and, and it's not just in racing, it's in everyday life and, and it's sad, but hopefully, um, you know, down the road, um, somebody will listen to this podcast and say, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot. And I don't have a lot of money. Maybe I have a little bit of money, but has a lot of desire and maybe someone will get a break. Well, I appreciate you coming on and telling your story and, you know, I think we both feel a lot of the same way is that you, know, you still have to dare to dream and and you, but you have to understand that it is a sacrifice. You'll have to give up so many things and it's not going to happen without you putting the work in and it still can happen. It's just to, it's going to be far and few between to get the opportunity. Somebody really talented, 
can make it happen. But, uh, you know, it's, again, it's, you've made a, you've made a lot of memories for yourself and your family. And, uh, I know we have done the same thing and that's what it's all about when it comes time to this time of our, our ages is you reflect on a lot of things that you've done and you have to feel really good about what we accomplished, both of us. And, uh, I know that, uh, obviously I think a lot of people that really know what it takes to do this, you know, really realize just how, how, you know, great of a job you've done and how productive of a race car driver you were. And so I know it. And I wanted the rest of the people here, uh, you know, that are listening to this podcast to realize it as well. And with that, I just want to, I want to say thank you for being on. Uh, it's been a pleasure and, uh, you know, I consider you a friend and, uh, I hope that you can enjoy the rest of your life in the manner in which you're doing it now. And, and, and that's what we're trying to do as well. So with that, I want to thank you. And, um, uh, you can find us uh, on racetheory.club and derekcope.club and you know, take a look at all the things we got going. But we'd love to hear your comments on this episode, and uh, we'll try to address some other things in our next uh, episode. But thanks again, and uh, I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Kevin, for coming on. Thank you, Derek. Yep. Thank you, and we'll hope you guys listen in next time. Thank you so much for listening. Did this episode give you some value? If so, please follow us on Facebook at Derek Cope and Instagram at Derek Cope double zero and leave a comment or question and use hashtag race theory. We can't wait to hear from you. See you on the next episode.